What's going on, guys? My name is Chris Conwell, and this is Ambition Radio. This is a podcast where we interview people who have been able to find that balance between their life, their career, their family, and the pursuit of their passion, their dreams, or their hobbies. Uh, this is a new year, so it's a little bit of a new look as far as what we have been doing. Uh, this podcast has been very music-heavy as far as the interviews go. So this week, we are actually breaking it up a little bit. Uh, I have my friend Jeremy Moeller. He is a writer, an activist, and a host of his own podcast called Meditation for the Masses. I've known Jeremy for a long time. He used to play in bands, so there is some of the music that's in there. But a lot of this show is us talking about politics, us talking about his mindset for that, the way that he approaches politics, and the way that he balances that also with his idea of meditation and mindfulness. It's a really interesting conversation, I think, and I hope that you guys enjoy it. Like always, please rate and review on iTunes. Subscribe on Google Play, Spotify, all that good stuff. Um, All your feedback, I really appreciate, and I'm really hoping that we can go ahead and push this thing to the next level this year. I'm really excited to be able to release an episode pretty much every week of this year. I have a lot of different plans for it, and I'm glad to have every one of you as a, a listener. Without further ado, here's the show. Enjoy. Are you playing anything now? I play guitar. I play, I'm playing uh, in like a little trio, I guess you'd say, like acoustic trio. Mm-hmm. And we just we do some covers. We do our some original stuff. And we have a show in January, but like I forgot about it for a while. So like we need to, <laughs> we need to prepare and like figure out what the date is and all that stuff. Yeah, that would be so we're not, important. It's not very serious. Like a house show. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. funny. So I don't know. I'm doing it. I'm doing it for fun. Yeah, because you haven't really played a lot at all. Really, I stopped in 2011. Was that with like, Honey House? Yeah. 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 All right. That, that was one of my favorites. <laughs> um, so what are you doing now? Because you have your podcast, The Meditation for the Masses, mm-hmm. and then you have the writing that you're doing yeah. and the activist stuff. Is that right? Yes. So okay. I, but so the writing, I, would, I guess it's interesting to try to put it in order, like of priority for me, maybe to think about it that way. I would call myself a writer Okay. for the most part, and I write about both left politics and meditation. Um, so I have a blog, personal blog, where I write about meditation, a little bit of politics. I'm trying to bring more politics into that. Okay. Um, and we can talk about that at some point if you want. Like where yeah. those, I think those things really kind of go together. That's sort of my biggest goal in life is to make that obvious, that, that connection between meditation and politics. But I also write about left politics um, for a nonprofit that's what I get. That's what I get paid to do. Right. And then I also teach meditation. Okay. Yeah. When did the the writing start for you? Was that in 2011? Yes. And when you moved up to DC, more or less. Well, I had been in DC for um, a while at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I moved to DC in 2008, particularly to play music. Uh, I was like, I gotta get out of Southern Maryland yeah. and play yeah. in in a, in a city, right? Like that's the only place that. Um, which is funny because you were playing with most of the people from Southern Maryland. I know, right? right? We were like, let's just like <laughs> relocate to DC, <laughs> um, and it worked. I mean, we got started getting more shows up there and, and doing that whole thing in DC, and but yeah, in 2011, uh, I was living in like a warehouse space that we were we were renting out to like practice our practice right. space. But I was living there too illegally in Chinatown <laughs> in Chinatown. Nice, yeah, uh, and. 
the real estate developer that owned it sold it to another developer okay. and then said, we're going to put, you know, fancy condos or uh, I think it now it's actually apartments, but really expensive apartments. Pretty much everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So they were like, you need to be out of here in six months. So I just lived there for those six months pretty much for free. Yeah, that uh, was that's a great time music. period instead of 30 minutes or 30 days. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Like, yeah, we'll give you six months. Like, uh, Thanks. <laughs> yeah. But the funny thing was there was like these – um, they were sending in their architects because they wanted to keep the oh, structure. Oh, yeah. Okay. They wanted to build on top of it so they could say, look, it's like an artist's loft. You know, pay us $4,000 a month because right. you're living in this, like, vintage artist loft. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, they're kicking the artist out. Yeah. But so they would send in these architects. So I had to, like, hide my bed and hide all, like, all oh, the stuff because yeah, I wasn't yeah, supposed yeah. to be living there. Like, every couple of days, someone would come in and be measuring. So I had to, like, put everything away and, and tuck it away and act like I wasn't living there. That sucks. It was kind of – it sucked, but it was kind of fun, actually, yeah. too. Like, um, living illegally. But <laughs> that sort of coincided with uh, me not being interested in music anymore. I mean, I think I've always loved music and still do. But interested in it as a way of expressing myself in the world and, and right. trying to – put myself out there because you've been playing music since you were what 16 15 yeah, 15 yeah, right 15 high school yep yeah. yeah so and then that has now developed into your voice now right yeah no i think that that you can just kind of i like to think about it and it's taken me a while now to realize this but i just basically shifted the same you could call it a fire or like fuel or whatever it was like pushing me to play music back then I just kind of shifted that passion into writing and then eventually into politics. So the right. politics and the writing sort of came at that same time. This is 2011. This is Occupy Wall Street, Occupy K Street. So right. K Street was happening right there near Chinatown, near my, near the uh, warehouse where I was living. And there were people just camped out there, right, like getting pissed off at rich people. And I'm like, eh, maybe I should – they're, they're saying the stuff that I've been thinking. Yeah, and, and saying, you have you know? the rich it's people like, coming into your space. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Yeah, right. So it sort of just started to click a little bit there. Before that, I wasn't really that political at all. Yeah, um, okay. So when did that mindset start coming into actual, like, a, a writing gig? Were you mm. looking at trying to join uh, either a website, or were you looking mm. at to just join the overall movement? Yeah, I think I just wanted to join the movement. Um, so I got involved with um, – first, I did. I got involved in politics not through writing, through just straight activism, organizing – so uh, there was sort of a branch off of Occupy K Street mm -hmm. that was getting involved in taking money. There was, at the time, there was this movement of, like, take your money out of Wall Street banks and put it into credit unions. Yeah, local. Lo and local banks, but mainly credit unions. Get it out of, get it out of Wall Street, right? Because they just yeah. crashed the economy. And so I got involved with that group of activists who were much more experienced they had been doing this work for a long time and i just came in and was like i kind of know what i'm doing I, I'm, I'm pretty i've learned i'm pretty good at like acting like i know what i'm right. doing and then, <laughs> then eventually like you find out i really don't know much you know so at that point i kind of went in they were like oh this guy's like in his mid-20s he must really know what he's doing like you can you know be one of the leaders in this like help us build the website and all this stuff and i'm like <laughs> okay so we did it and um we we actually targeted a local targeted a local credit union in dc to try to get on the board okay because you can get elected it's democratic right. elected and then use the money that that credit union has to do like cool stuff yeah progressive stuff for the members just a little experiment in democracy direct how did democracy. that work out we lost <laughs> they were like who are these like random kids knocking on our door like in their 20s like it's mostly these older people and like yeah 
you know, Montgomery County somewhere that were members of this credit union that just want to go and like cash their checks, you know? Yeah. And we're like, no, we want to like, you know, um, pay the workers at the credit union office more. Like they should be paid more. And we were making all these demands and we're like, I don't know about that. Like these are just activists and we were, <laughs> that's literally what we were doing. But so that kind of gave me a little bit of understanding about how local politics works and organizing and power, how that works, how to run a campaign. And then I started writing. I think I, my writing in the beginning at that time was more, um, a little bit more creative because okay. I had just been writing songs. So yeah. it wasn't quite fiction, but it was. Um, do you know David Foster Wallace? Yes. Right. So his nonfiction work. What was? Oh man. Infinite Jest was that's, his that's big it. fiction. Yeah, movie. and yeah. then um, the dude that did the Muppet. Not the Muppet movie. Uh, yeah, the dude that did the Muppet movie and Forgetting Sarah Marshall, the, the, yeah, the big guy in that. He played, he played David, yep. which is a great movie, and I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And yeah. It, it really puts his his demeanor, I thought, was really played out well with mm. that and mm. just the, the relationship that he had with the, the reporter and all that stuff, which was great. Yeah, so. such an awkward, like, lonely dude. Yeah. In that, you know, he <laughs> yeah. played it perfectly. Depressed. So, so I wanted I wanted to be David Foster Wallace and write like <laughs> weird nonfiction takes on things. He has this book called Consider the Lobster that I was really into at the time, where he writes about going to a, a lobster seafood fair or something mm-hmm. convention, and just writes how absurd it is and like kind of gives his view. Um, he almost he he actually at some point said that he wrote these nonfiction essays, like this one about the lobster convention as like this big giant eyeball that was just going around and like documenting what was happening. And he would have little jokes in there and little clever asides. So I wanted to do that. So I actually went to a NASCAR race and got like a media pass and was inside in Richmond at the race. It was wild, man. It was like, I had been to races before as a fan, but not inside. Right. As they're working on the cars and the cars are flying by and people are smoking cigarettes right by the, right by the gas. And like, I'm like, whoa, we're this not is supposed gnarly. To do that. Yeah, we're not supposed to do that in real life. I know, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I went down that path for a while and then eventually started writing about politics itself and, okay. and, and lining that up. And then I got a job for a nonprofit now that I work for. I've been there about four years helping nice. the um, the labor movement. So, you know, unions, particularly yeah. public sector unions like teachers. Yes. For example, trying to help them. So I write stuff. In some ways, I sort of write propaganda to help them, <laughs> to be 100% honest with you, and it's really fun to do. Yeah, I think one of the the main things you and I would agree on is charter schools are the bane of my existence. Uh, I don't I don't like the whole idea of them. I don't yeah. understand it. Yeah. I don't understand how you can have something publicly funded and privately run, Yeah. Um, and especially when it's that important for our future. Totally. So why is it the bane of your existence? Well, mostly it, it hate I hate it. Okay, how's that? Cool. Not the yeah. No, I'm just wrong. Like, why fr- are you? Yeah, wrong phrase. But I hate it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I yeah. wanted to be a teacher for the longest time. And oh, okay. I still do, and I I think mm. the biggest thing that's a travesty and a huge disservice to everybody coming up is the fact that the the schools aren't funded correctly and they're the teachers aren't supported correctly and yeah. there's there's so much that can be done and mm-hmm. it really hurts to have you know I'm a product of a public school and the fact that we can do this in this kind of environment is mm-hmm. wonderful and the fact that you have other 
sectors and other places that don't have any of the same opportunities, Mm -hmm. but they're all publicly funded, so they should have all the same kind of money, just irritates me to to no end. Yeah. I know it's it's your podcast, but why did you want to be a teacher? Why do you want to be a teacher? So that that's the only thing that I, I really have liked doing is teaching. Yeah. Um, the every every throughout my career, no matter what I was doing, I was teaching something. Like as a, mm. a manager now, my main job is teaching. Right. My main job is telling people how to do stuff, showing mm. them how to do it, and then doing it side by side with them. Right. Right. So that's always come up. So my whole idea whenever I get to this place is to try and be a, a corporate trainer, right? Cool. And then eventually retire and become a community college teacher. Oh, cool. That's, yeah. that's like my little goal for everything. And then hopefully continue to do this. Cause this has been a fantastic experience for me, mm-hmm. but you know, having, having that mindset of what I want to do. And like when I was going to school for it, they just took out a whole bunch of the scholarships where you can't get paid up front for everything. Mm. You have to basically be an indentured servant almost, right? Where you have to go to school, pay for it, and then work in the in the state, you'll eventually get paid back. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's fine, but I need money kind of now. Yeah. So I was going to school yeah. full-time and working full-time, and then that kind of went away. Yeah. But the, the teaching and the training aspect of it has always mm-hmm. been kind of – my goal for everything. So, yeah, I hear you. Um, but yeah, once, once charter schools came through and I, I, this is something that you write about, I think fairly frequently. Um, it's, it's one of the things that has always never sat well with me Mm -hmm. and just the, the mindset of it and the way I think you brought up a couple of things with your writing where there were so many charter schools that have also failed Mm -hmm. and just popped right back up. Mm -hmm with the same leadership or the, the same maybe one or two people that are creating more and more pop-ups, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, totally. It's like, so um, Betsy DeVos, right? So she's the education mm-hmm. secretary for Trump right now. Huge charter school proponent uh, or somebody that's supported and has been pushing for charter school for so long. She compared at public education. She said public education should be like um, – a food truck should be a set of food trucks that you go up. And if you don't like what you got there, go to the other one. Right. And you're kind of, it's basically a market. Yeah. Private market. Yeah. And so to you, what you were just getting at is that if we look at public schools, this institution, this democratic institution as uh, like a business as purely run like a business, you know, that whole model is that, Oh, if it, if it doesn't provide service to folks or to students in this case, or parents that are sending their kids to the school, uh, it will just fail. And then that person can try again. It's basically like an entrepreneur, just trying different forms of education. Now I think on paper, that sort of makes sense to a lot of people that it could work because that's, well, that's, that's sort of how our economy works. Yeah, right? yeah, that's the whole country, right? Right. Exactly. So you have that free market that's right. supposed to be how it dictates, and yeah, yeah. But when you look at the look at pr- the practice, the reality of it, I mean, think about a kid that goes to school for three or four months in a school year, and then that school fails overnight, right? It, it doesn't have to, and they don't have anywhere to go, right? They've got to find scramble to find another school, and of course the 
the, the traditional neighborhood public schools, which are the ones we all sort of grew up around, or most of us at least that went through public education, it's the school in our area. And, you know, there's a bus that comes and picks us up, yeah. right? Charter schools are different. They can be anywhere, um, and you can go to them from anywhere, more or less. But that traditional neighborhood school has to take on that charter school student because it's a public institution and it's guaranteed by right uh, in, in whatever state or county or city you live in. It has to be there for any students, whether they need special needs, right, that are very expensive. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a public good, right? Our tax, pay, tax money goes into providing this public good for every student, no matter whatever their needs are. Charter school doesn't have to do that, but it gets it's run by our tax money. We pay for it. <laughs> so there's there's just an obvious missing link there, yeah. right? That uh that has always angered me when I first learned about charter schools. Yeah. I didn't grow it, up with any down here in Southern Maryland, but right. they're all through DC. Yeah, and there's there's more and more that are popping up they even are. down here. Okay. Yeah. I didn't and know that. it it always boggles my mind cuz you could use the same revenue stream to build up the schools that you currently have. Yes. Or, or to create more schools to cater to those rural areas or those downtown areas. Mm-hmm. Whatever you need, you have the funding for. Why are you giving it out to people that, A, haven't been proven, B, you know that it's a different kind – well, they don't know, right? So you should right. know that it's a different kind of institution, yeah. different kind of business, different kind of you know whole gambit in there. Like mm-hmm. you can't, can't treat it just like – a food truck. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think, um, you know, if folks listening don't know what a charter school is, I mean, the fun, there's a lot of differences, but the fundamental difference is that it's run by a private, it's managed by a private board. Right. right? So it publicly in, funded and then privately run. Basically. Exactly. So if you're a parent and you have an issue with what happened <coughs> in a classroom where your kid, something happened, the teacher did something to your kid or another, another kid did something to your kid and you want to go, deal with that issue and find out what happened in a traditional public school you can go to the school district you can go to the board that you elected right we elect the school board in our mm-hmm. counties and cities and you can complain now whether they listen or not that's a whole right. different question but at least they have to listen to you and whether they do something about it or not is a whole other issue and we can work and fix on fix that make things more democratic but at a charter school, you go and complain, and they can say, all right, we'll just go to a different school. Go to a different food truck. You didn't yeah. like my meal. Go somewhere else. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and then that, that whole breeds into the, the standardized testing and all, yeah. all, all the other nonsense that, that comes with it. Yeah. Um, but for you, your, your main goal is to get teachers paid better, right, and get them better benefits, get them mm. a, a more secure workplace, mm. uh, a safer workplace, yeah. right? So where does that kind of mentality start coming for you? Was mm. it through the, the credit union where you see mm. all this stuff around you and now yeah. you're just like, I'm ready to go, ready to kind of pursue this a little bit more? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I'm still still searching inside of myself of where this interest in labor politics comes from for me. I, I will go back and just slightly um, address or adjust what you just said. I would say my main goal when it comes to the charter school issue, and then I also work on other issues of privatization, so Mm -hmm. private prisons, private water, stuff like that. I'd rather them be in public hands. We should have control control of these vital resources as a community. 
um, it, it's not only just the workers, it is the workers, but it's also for democratic control as citizens. We should have a say in how a school in our neighborhood is run, or if we're sending our kid there, we should have a say in how it's run. So it, it's democracy for citizens, but it, then it's democracy for the teachers. Yeah, and, and especially the, if it's our money going exactly. into it. Wait, so not, we have a right to that. Yeah. yeah so it's that, not a tuition that you're paying. Exactly. It's not it a business transaction. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so that it's both of those things for me. Um, but to your question, I mean, I think that at first it was the credit union experience at, mm -hmm. around Occupy. Um, I think what was really driving that for me was going back to music, playing music since, you know, from 15 to 25 in my head, I was going to be a rock star, <laughs> right? It was going to pay off at some point, like all this work and playing driving every weekend and mm -hmm. playing, and you know, putting on shows, like yep. how much work goes into that and loading things in, loading things out. Getting people to listen. Getting and people to up. listen, all that stuff. Yeah. You know, and putting on a few small tours for the bands I was in and just doing that whole thing. And it was, it was a blast in so many ways. And I got to see a lot of areas of the country outside of Southern Maryland, you know, as a high schooler and then yeah. in college too. Um, that I thought, you know, that's how I wanted to live my life. But at the same time, there was part of me that was hoping it was going to pay off at some point in some sort of like, okay, I put in all this work. When are people just going to start in being interested right. in the music outside of some friends and some local folks? And it just it just never happened, even when I moved to D.C. Now, part of me could say was saying and realized that, okay, maybe I'm just not talented enough or maybe my songs just aren't good enough. And that that's one truth to the story. But I think there was another part of me that was just increasingly angry um, and had a lot of resentment for the music industry and the way that that, that it worked, uh, at least in the, the rock, the kind of indie yeah. rock world, where I feel like looking back, and I didn't see this until afterwards, after I stopped playing, that like, basically, you're a bunch of bands, you know, you have, you have a bunch of bands in a city or an area that are sort of competing against each other in a lot of ways for listeners and mm -hmm. for shows, and... Now we, to we didn't talk about that competition when I was playing. You know, we were great friends with these other bands, and we wanted to help each other out. Like, yeah, get on this show. I'll introduce you to this promoter, right? So we, there was a brotherly or sisterly, all that sort of. I connection. think within the bands, yeah. there's always that piece of camaraderie in there, right? Yeah. Within within the artists themselves, yeah. The problem is the people that are booking the artist and putting on the shows for them to play, right? And just if you parallel that to any kind of democracy as a whole, right? Yeah. If you get the people talking and more cohesive, mm -hmm. then you can have that conversation of, oh, well, why don't we just put on our own stuff? Mm. Why don't mm -hmm. we pull our own money together? Mm -hmm. Why are mm -hmm. we letting you know certain people run everything, right? Yeah. So it's the same kind of concept yeah. um, that I, I even notice still today where it's we're – I'm in the conversation with a couple people that we really want to bring the disjointed Southern Maryland area mm. very much together because now we're all older. We're all 25, 30, 35, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we've seen how the world works. Mm -hmm. We're not 15. Mm -hmm. We're not playing just at my brother's place, right? <laughs> right, just, right? Just hoping for the best. We we are seeing that, A, there's no future for the kids, and B, what can we do about it? We have the means to do it. Why why aren't we doing something with it? So exactly. I think that's that's also a, just a good parallel that you probably didn't even like realize. No, I didn't see it. I didn't yeah. see it at all. And I and my answer instead of sticking around and trying to eventually 
get to where I was working with other people in other bands and putting on shows because I would I, I recorded music for a while too. My answer instead of sounds like where you're getting at now and a number of other people in your world are getting to. Um, I was like, I'm done with this. I can't like. There's no. Yeah. There's no way, like, we're just kind of fighting each other for a couple free beers at the bar. At least this was in D.C., right? We I remember there was a show we played at Solly's, a little Irish bar on U Street, like 9th and U, maybe 10th mm-hmm. and U in, in D.C. And I, you know, I was 25. I was working a corporate job during the day, sort of wearing the suit and tie thing, just and not enjoying it at all, right? Just feeling alienated at my job, making decent money to be able to live in D.C. to play music. So I was yeah. living two lives. Whether or not you were living there freer or whatever. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, exactly. I was living free, living in this warehouse, and then doing the, the corporate job. I was showering in a gym at that time. We didn't have a shower at the warehouse. Hey, it was, it was fun, man. Do, it was right? fun. But uh, we played Sally's on like a Tuesday night. I had already asked all my coworkers a hundred times and my friends in D.C. a you know, hundred times to come to shows and this one, just the, that right confluence, and I'm sure this has happened to you so many times, that confluence of, like, everyone's kind of doing something else. That one night, yeah. Tuesday night, right, middle, it was cold, it was winter, yeah. and there was, like, two people there, you know? And, and it just this, I think it wasn't that that pushed me over the edge, but it was just a nice crystallization of something that had been happening inside of me for some time now, where it's just like, man, I... And all we were getting paid was two, two free drink tickets, right, at the bar, and it's just like, this is... Yeah, it's so enough. disheartening, to, to try and put in as much work as yeah. you can and you be as passionate as, as you can yeah. and it just not pan out for yeah. whatever reason or another. Yeah. I think one of the, the things that I've discovered a little bit more um, with talking to people and just growing up, right, is that if you treat your music as a business and then you have the business sense to do everything – you're sometimes a little bit more successful, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're not prepared to do that and not having that mindset in there, then the long-term goal of mm. being any kind of successful mm-hmm. kind of hurts. Yeah. You know, you have to you have to kind of treat it and own it. And if you're at that point where I mean that's one of the reasons why I stopped doing shows was cuz I didn't have the money to do it. Mm-hmm. I was doing it just that was my creative outlet. Right. Right. So this is, this is, I would have kept doing it if I could have afforded it, Mm -hmm. but I can't work full time and then do that full time and pretend like it's going to be, everything's going to be fine. Yeah. It's 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 hard to sustain it. Yeah. It's hard. Like I think, um, I think my early twenties or like in college, early twenties, you know, I, I was, it was a passion thing. I was just, I had so much energy to burn and put into that. And then when the money started getting real and the bills started getting real and all that, it really kind of, you know, put me in a position to have to choose. Is this something that I want to continue to do? I think the other thing that happened for me, too, is that at that point I was getting a little bit more political with my lyrics. Mm -hmm. Not like outright political, but I definitely was like taking them more personally at that time in Honey House. You know, I was 24, 25. It was less about... I want to write something that is going to impress people and sort of be clever and be a pop hit on the radio. It was more like, what do I actually really want to say when I'm up here on the stage? I was thinking live more at that point. Like, what do I actually want to say with this microphone? And there's people right there. I kind of got into that head game. Um, And I think through playing shows, like I said, this one show where there's a couple people there, but there's other shows where there was a lot of people there. But, you know, afterwards, it wasn't like people came up and said, oh, I liked what you said. That was interesting. You know, let's talk about that. 
it was like, oh, that was great. That was a cool show. That was awesome. And I wasn't really being heard in the way that I wanted to be heard, which I think was a personal issue. You know, mm-hmm. I probably should have just went to a therapist. <laughs> but uh, um, I, th- I think that that is a point that you have to to try and and determine what you what you want your message to be, right? Right. right. So. I think my message mostly for this is how do you find that balance and that drive to keep going? Yeah. Cause I've dealt with that over the years. Right. Mm. So whether it's not doing shows, whether it's, mm. you know, for me, one of the other things is not pursuing a teaching career. Cause it just doesn't pay as well as I, I make now. Yeah. Right. So having that drive to continue to keep that in the back of your mind and balance out the rest of the other stuff that's what we have to think about. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for you, I mean, that that point where what do I want to say with my music? What do I want to actually do with it yeah. is have conversations with people. Exactly. And get people talking, get exactly. people more bought in and have a more human connection rather than exactly. just an artist and fan totally, connection, yeah. right? You, you nailed it. Exactly. Yeah, I was really becoming disillusioned with who I was on stage. And I remember it's also when my dr- uh, drinking started really ticking up a lot. You know, smoking weed before every show. Was, I had to be drunk. I had to be high to get up there, because I think I, you're you're kind of hitting it on the on the the nail on the head here. Is that um, that there just it, there never was enough connection on stage with the crowd, um, yeah. and it and it felt like there was this huge gap between me and and the people in the crowd. And I I even got to where I was freestyling, and I still do this to some degree, some degree. Um, with Honey House, the last like year, mm-hmm. I I just made the lyrics up every show. I would go up on stage and I would just roll with it and say whatever every time, different. And I think part of that was almost trying to get to where I could get a rise out of people in the crowd mm-hmm. enough to get some connection, right? To change it up instead of just going through the motion. What felt like to me just going through the motions of executing a performance. And at that point, with the drinking and, and, and drugs and stuff all at the same time, and I was I was working that corporate job during the day, yeah. and just really my life was becoming split. I was like, something's got to change. And yeah. that's right when that warehouse that I was living in got bought up, and they're like, you got to get, get out of here. I also met a woman in that time and started a relationship. So all these things were sort of changing at the right time or at the same time. And that's when I just kind of like, all right, see ya. I'm going to go do politics and write. And, and kind of and, and see if that is where I can get that connection that yeah. I'm looking for and that impact I'm looking for. And so far it has paid off. I think I've veered now I've added the meditation right. piece, which really gives me that one on one teaching aspect because I think I'm I'm like you, I, I want to teach ultimately, you know, in different ways. Yeah. That's really what it's about for me. Helping people understand things, you know. Yeah, that it's I mean, it's a big piece. Um if you find that calling within yourself, there's gotta be you never stop. Yeah. Like you no matter what happens, even if you're just trying to help out someone, like it I don't know, I always I always find myself trying to just help out as much as I can in yeah. one aspect or another. Um and that that I think that is built into teaching is a selfless job. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're you're not there for yourself. Right. You're not if you want to be there career wise, go into the admin area. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And be elected to a board, mm-hmm. continue to do the politicking mm-hmm. of it. If you're teaching, if you if you want to do that, you know, there's a specific passion and drive for that. Yeah. And that's that's something that I think is instilled into every teacher and everybody that wants to be 
some kind of, of a way to connect to people and, and to teach and to you just have it built into you. Totally, totally, yeah. totally. So with your writing, where does it start to get more into the the unions yeah. and kind of that yeah. that mindful aspect of it too? Yeah, because you're you're doing the the meditation, the mindfulness, mm-hmm. and then now you're bringing the politicking part into that too, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And that's another great question. <coughs> another great question. Um, I think that I ultimately want to bring together the mindfulness and meditation with politics because I felt like I've, I've have felt like in the meditation mindfulness circles, Mm -hmm. that world that is emerging now in the United States. And that's a fad, right? I've tried it. (laughs) Um, didn't like it. I probably should go back to it though, because my body is a, a train wreck. Most of them are temples. Mine is crumbling <laughs> all the way through. Yeah, yoga should help you, man. I, yeah, I think for me, um, I do so much meditation that I'm not. I don't want to sit there and do more yoga or do yoga. Right. You know, right? But if if I didn't do meditation, I would do yoga. I do a little bit every morning, and it's it's amazing. It's amazing. But it definitely has become a fad and a trend, right? It's been sort. It's been captured up by a lot a lot of folks that want to make a lot of money and are trying to like kind of turn it into the, like McDonald's or Walmart of yoga. And this is happening in DC for example, but yeah, chains I mean, of yoga. That's what yeah, that's what I was about to say. There's places. there's probably oh, so many chains that are popping up yeah. that all they're worried about is just making a buck because right. they know that affluent women are going to exactly. go in there and yep. they're the ones with all the money, right? Exactly. Yep. And then yeah. you, and then even the ones that aren't the, the affluent one. They're still trying to aspire to be that image. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And yeah, you're getting to where, um, I've been dissatisfied. I've had some dissatisfaction in the meditation world, which is a little less developed right now Mm -hmm. in the United States. There's kind of groups that meditate. There's some monast, like kind of old school Buddhist monasteries where people go and meditate, where you actually have monks there with the shaved heads and they're kind of leading you, um, but it's, there's, there's not like centers everywhere yet. Like there is yoga where you go take meditation classes and you pay every class. We're not there yet. I don't know if we'll get there, but, um, in that world, uh, in DC, I started getting into meditation about four or five years ago now in DC and it's mostly white. It's mostly uh, professional class folks in their thirties and forties and fifties. Yeah. Exactly. White collar. Yep. Um, and you know, highly educated folks, and there isn't a lot of politics there. So they don't just, they don't talk about politics. They don't think about it. And I think that when I'm in those spaces, when I have been in those spaces, since I got into meditation, I was, I'm always like, well, you know, cause a lot of the talk around mindfulness and meditation, a lot of it is the value of it is that it lessens or decreases our suffering or stress, mm-hmm. right? Stress is one form of suffering. Well, you can't talk about that if you're not going to talk about the way our economy works and who has power in our society and who doesn't, right? Right. Do you think most people are going to meditation to shut off and to not think about that stuff? And that's why maybe that conversation isn't having. And do they think that maybe that isn't the place for it? Yes. And people have said that. I've been in classes where people, we, you know, someone talks about 
Trump or they talk about racism or they talk about something that is a little taboo or a little uh, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of um, tension or but it's actually it. happening but it's happening in the world and it came up yeah. for somebody when they were meditating and it's something they're stressing about and someone else reacts in the way you just said well this isn't where we we talk about that you know I don't it, you know almost like you you know some churches are that way in Christianity mm-hmm. as far as I understand where it's like well this isn't we don't talk about politics here we don't talk about sex here we don't talk about these things we just kind of keep it you know high and tight, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's playing out in meditation circles as well, even though a lot of people would call them hippies and they're they're liberals and they're loose, but they won't, a lot of these groups that I've been a part of have not been able to go to those places and talk about those tough subjects, which I think are, you know, a key part of why most of us and many of us are suffering. Um, You know, the economy is is tough or or society's Mm -hmm. rough, you know, all these things. So I've been dissatisfied with that and wanted more politics and more tough conversations in these meditation circles. But then when I go to the political side and I, you know, I, the credit union organizing I was talking about eventually got into just a little bit more straightforward um, kind of socialist organizing in D.C. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of left-wing, a little more radical stuff in D.C. A lot of the discussions there are about theory, about what Marx, Karl Marx wrote and said versus what this person said. And no, there's definitely practicality, but there's no discussion of like um, personal issues at all, which, which I think are important in politics, right? Like maybe you had a bad day today and that's why you're arguing with me over what Karl Marx said and what his theories were and you're being an asshole to me, you know? Like if we're all if we're all just um, if if we're all mean to each other when we're discussing socialism or whatever however we want the world to to be like whatever we want the world to be like, you know, we have to actually like connect and and have build some community together to like yeah. then say this society that we're in is broken we need to fix it. Well, like if we're just mean to each other and cutting each other down and calling each other out like the call out culture right. stuff on Facebook well, and all that. Also, if you don't have any kind of personal connection at that point, you aren't going to feel safe enough exactly. to talk about all the other right. stuff in there, right? Exactly. Yep. So yeah. there, there's no point into just arguing left and right exactly. when you can't make a human connection. Exactly. So yeah, you you put it much more clearly that human connection so so in in politics you have not that much human connection going on right mm-hmm. people are just arguing ideology their thoughts and their ideas and theories and so then looking for the bigger umbrella yeah to put everybody under exactly instead of yeah okay. right let's connect let's get to a place where we can actually have a conversation about our lives and values and the things that really drive politics and then on the meditation side another area of my life they're not political enough. They're not like they're not talking about ideas and politics. They're just talking about right here, right now. Right. You know, I I I Be feel present. sick today, or I feel stressed today because my cat, you know, is sick. Which that could be true, and that's great. Share that with someone. But there's also other things going on in the world too, right? So, so to me, I feel like I want to bring these two things together. You know, I want to kind of push push these two worlds together, this political side of things and the meditation side. I think you can't have one or the other, you know, or the personal side. I want to say, meditation yeah. is just my way to get to um, Yeah, no, it makes personal. sense. I mean, just like what we said, there's no – if you just talk in theory and look for the – what's going to benefit the whole, you're missing out on the individual exactly. parts that make up that whole. Exactly. So that's that's a very – 
difficult thing to be able to connect and then also disconnect because there's mm. you shouldn't you shouldn't be disconnecting the the two even though that seems to be the norm exactly yeah weird yeah. yeah um where did meditation start for you um it started with uh, a talk that i went to by tara brock she's a local teacher in dc but also pretty well known nationally uh, and she gives free talks in bethesda mm-hmm. um beautiful universalist church where she teaches beautiful space and you just go and she gives a talk she leads a meditation guided meditation you close your eyes there's like 200 people in the room you listen you just meditate and then she gives a talk for about an hour and these are called dharma talks in buddhism um and basically on different aspects of meditation or mindfulness or buddhist philosophy it's it's pretty secular. It's not super Buddhisty, I would say, mm-hmm. with Tara Brock particularly. She's also a trained psychiatrist. Um, she has a PhD in clinical psychology, so she sort of brings in, and she's American. She was born in the D.C. area. Brings in that that sort of Western, for lack of better way to put it, uh, translation of Buddhism. So it just it was like she was like someone that like I that grew up down the street from me or something in my neighborhood, and here she is telling like talking about this like really. Yeah, that's um, complex an int- Buddhist psychology. It's an interesting approach because she probably is taking that those Buddhist teachings and that Buddhist philosophy in a more logical and yeah. maybe a little bit more detailed oriented, right? Exactly, and she brings in neuroscience as well. I mean, it's pop science. She's not studying this stuff, but she has enough of it to really sort of make it yeah. seem like you said logical is the word, right? It's not yeah. so mystical and spiritual. So I, went, I, I was brought there by a, a woman I was dating my girlfriend at the time, had gone to a number of her talks. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I've always sort of been interested in meditation. You know, it was something that was interesting to me from afar. I've always looked up to, like, martial artists and, like, Bruce yeah. Lee and that right. whole, like, be water stuff, right. you know, all that stuff. Like, that's cool. Like, let me, let me go try this out. And I uh, just clicked. Clicked from there. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And can you tell me a little bit about mindfulness too? I have a, a very, very rough understanding yeah. of it. So I don't, I don't think they go hand in hand all the time, Mm-mm. right? There, mindfulness is its own kind of philosophy and its own kind of teaching, mm. if if I mm. remember right, right? Mm. Well, I would say mindfulness. You're on, you're on the right track. Mindfulness is the product of meditation. Okay. So there isn't a mindfulness thing that exists it's just when you do meditation one of the benefits is that you're more mindful which means that and there's many ways to put this right it's been translated from buddhism and sanskrit and all those Mm -hmm. other languages uh, asian languages in different ways by different people but i would say if i was just going to kind of like spitball here mindfulness is like the ability to see your thoughts in your head uh, you know the thoughts that we have as as what they really are. They're just thoughts passing through the mind, right? They're not necessarily things that you need to believe and they aren't necessarily you. Like they, they're, they're just, it's like almost, it's another phenomenon, right? It's like a bird flying by or a cloud going by. It's just the thought fires through the brain and you can either believe it or not. You can, mm-hmm. you can get caught in, say, a story. Say you're driving and you start thinking about something that happened the, yesterday, Right, and you had uh, you got in a fight or something, a debate with somebody, an argument, and it got kind of rough. 
say your mom or something like that. Mm-hmm. You're visiting your family for, I'm just kind of bringing up one of my Holidays. examples here. Yeah, yeah, I was just yeah. visiting my parents for Christmas <laughs> and you get an argument with your mom and then you're driving the next day and suddenly that comes back up in your head and you're replaying it and you're saying, oh man, did I say too many, did I, did I, you know, make her sad? Did I hurt her right. when I said this or when she said this, like it hurt me and you get angry and that's a storyline playing through your head. Meanwhile, you're driving down the road and Usually we get caught in the storyline and we replay the conversation, right, for a while. I don't know. This is how your mind works, but it works for me. I'll replay something that happened in the past. But when you're mindful, you're able to say, okay, I'm not here right now. Right now I'm driving down the road. Right. Like why am I replaying this conversation? I can either continue down that path of thought or I can just let that thought go and come back to right here while I'm driving and look at the cars in front of me. I'm right here in the moment, right? And not get in an accident. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yep, yep. Okay. All that's right. that's the, the, like, simple version. Okay. And it's very – meditation helps you do that more often. It doesn't – when you meditate, you're not just suddenly, like, enlightened that day, and you can, like, always decide whether so you're you – you're not just glowing coming out of Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, and you're not just, like, completely in control of your thoughts. You just have a little bit more – freedom and choice on whether you go down that storyline in your head or not yeah which i would assume that not a lot of people have because that i've caught myself going through all that and if you're not conscious of it and not aware of the fact that you know you don't have to just keep going and going and going mm-hmm. i get distracted a lot of times and so it'll mm-hmm. just end up going into a different thought anyway right, but right. you don't have control over that so the the idea i would assume just from what you're saying, is to get to a point where you have kind of control over whether or not you pursue whatever thought that pops up, right? Mm-hmm. Whether or not you can compartmentalize it and set it off to the side and then mm-hmm. just be present for the moment, mm-hmm. or if you really need to think about that and and maybe reevaluate it, reanalyze it, mm-hmm. yada, 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 right? You nailed it, yeah, because like... You don't want to get to where you're just always right here in the moment because then you wouldn't be able to plan. Like we, we need that part of our brain to plan the next day or the rest of the day. Right. You're thinking about the future, right? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go get gas. I'm going to get this, whatever. Or if you did, you know, hurt your mom in a conversation and you want to like go say sorry about it at some point, it's good to think through that and make those decisions. What you're saying is, is right on because you have a little bit more control, not full control, you never have full control over right. your mind. Um, a little bit more control on whether you want to spend this moment right now as it comes up. Like, do I want to go down that path right now or can I do that later on tonight? You know, when I'm in a different, when I'm not sitting here with someone else or whatever, right? Yeah. So it's just a little bit more control over the the direction that your mind goes in. Yeah. Do you find that, so with you being in D.C., you have a lot of white collar around you, right? Mm-hmm. You have a lot of all lack of a better term, millennials, right? Yep. And phones, they, they have all the distractions around them. And then with the white collar, you have all the, the nonsense that comes with a job, family, all of that good stuff, yep. right? Yep. So do you find that, and w- even with your podcast, do you find that maybe that's what you're trying to bring to them is more of that personal touch to where they can see what's happening in their own life a little bit better, be able to maybe disconnect from all the distractions around Mm -hmm. them, shut off for a hot second, Mm -hmm. but then also be mindful enough to where you can have an actual conversation with someone going in the future. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that 
if we broaden it out just to millennials in general, right? Yeah. Uh, all the distractions from our phones. Um, and the way I like to think about it is like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Google, all these massive tech companies are spending millions and millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars every year, right? And designing their apps and, and kind of iterating and changing their apps almost every day, the algorithms and the mm -hmm. way it's designed to try to get more of our attention because what they are ultimately selling is our attention, right? They collect data on what we click on, what we look at, what we do, and then they sell that to advertisers. And that that's their business. It's not to be a social media company. It's not all these other things. They're just trying to get our attention. So we have all these like massive corporations that have a lot of money uh, and a lot of power vying for our attention. So what, what I'm getting at is it's almost impossible to expect that you're going to be able to pull your head out of the like suction cup that's mm -hmm. just like constantly trying to get you to look at it. It's, you know, you're, you're really stepping against, you know, uh, not only just like a river, but like an ocean, like a wave, like a massive tsunami, right? You're, you'd have to be swimming against that. You're going against the current just not to, to get on Facebook. Yeah. Um, and it just be, every day becomes harder and harder and harder to like, what is it, like go off the grid and just kind of yeah. tune out of all that stuff. So I think that the mindfulness for me has helped me in my own life. I mean, I'm still on Facebook. I'm still doing this stuff. I think it's it's an important thing to keep up with politics and keep up with my friend, what my friends are doing right. and see what you're doing with your – And we are your, a digital platform at this point yeah, too, we're on right? Podcast. So you yeah. have to – Yeah. There's got to be some kind of balance there to yeah. where you're not sucked into it, but you have to be able to use it. Exactly. So it's almost like controlling the current. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. And that's where the mindfulness helps a little bit. I mean, it's not like I will not say that I get on my fa get on Facebook yeah. on my phone and I'm like in control the whole time. Like, oh, I will click that. No, I won't click on I that. I will like everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely just like scrolling, you know, down or whatever, like yeah. kind of mindlessly. But at some point I'm able to like, bloop, like pull my head out of that suction cup. A little quicker than I used mm -hmm. to if I wasn't meditating. Okay. There'd be hours would go by or something, you know, an yeah. hour goes by and you're just scrolling through Instagram looking at stuff. Whoa, what just happened in the last 10 minutes? I, you know, whatever. That happens less now. I'm able to like pop out a little bit quicker when I've meditated. So yeah, that's, I think that's one of the benefits of mindfulness. That's great. How did that, how's that affected your writing? Um, is it going into where you're you're trying to develop more personal relationships through the writing, hmm. or are you still staying very much, you know, your your politics in there? Yeah, it's another great question. Um, you're good at this. Uh, I try. <laughs> you're I good try. at this, man. You're good at this. Um, that's an open question for myself right now. I'm trying to figure that out. I think I'm not satisfied with my political writing at the moment, not because I don't think it's like good writing or where I should be writing wise. I mean, I think I can get a lot better in terms of as a writer, as a craft, but you know, I'm working yeah, you've on You've only it. done it for a few yeah, years, right? Right, yeah. right. So I don't really beat myself up about that, but what I do want to, what I'm pushing for and kind of pushing into a new area for me is tr trying to get more personal with my writing. Um, and one of the, and that comes up with when I write about meditation. So I write about meditation on my own blog I write about politics in, you know, uh, other publications uh, mm -hmm. and newspapers. But I'm increasingly just trying to make my writing about meditation more personal, more personal. Like dig into what it what it means for me, 
um, what it does in my life and then talk about other people and what they're, you know, I teach now. So I have students that are, that meditate and bring up some of those examples. So really just personalizing, personalizing that, um, that writing. And it's starting to seep into the, to the political stuff a little bit too. And I'm starting to, to starting to bring in examples from my own life and then even talk about where my politics has came from my own journey and tie that into what I'm saying about charter schools or whatever it is, right? And so I can, for example, write something where I'm a product, like you said, of public education. I went to, um, you know, Mary H. Matula in La Plata. I went to La Plata High School, went to Milton Summers Middle School, and just drudging up and thinking about stories from public school teachers that were so meaningful to me in my life and, and motivating me uh, to eventually find writing in politics and meditation as the different things I'm into, being able to weave that into writing about politics and writing about public schools, I think is ultimately what people want to read and what they're moved by, right? Yeah, that's that's what I was just about to ask you. Do you get more feedback now that some of that stuff is seeping through? Because I would, I would think that w- would be what separates writers and what separates you know their followers and their, their audience is mm. – which writer, and we, we talk about this with novels, we talk about this with, with everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So what artist really affects you and connects with you, yeah. you can do the same thing with the, the writing that you're doing with your politics. It doesn't have to be just your form, this is what happened, I can cut off at any kind of paragraph because that's the, the word count, whatever, yeah, right? Right, right? You want to be able to get a little bit more connection in there, right? That's kind of the whole main theme at this point, yeah? Yeah, no, totally. I think that for some people that want, that write more theory-based mm-hmm. work, maybe this is an academic that writes about politics or someone that works at a think tank <coughs> in D.C. and is writing reports, some people are satisfied with that. They're fine with kind of this is my writing and I'm going to stay out of it and I'm going to stay behind the scenes. And I think people are – some a lot of folks are completely comfortable with that. Um, I'm not. I can't take it. I want to like – peek around the edge. I want you to see me a little bit. And I think part of that, I mean, I admit is definitely, you know, about me. It's ego, right? A little bit. Like I don't want to hide behind it. I want my name on that writing. I want, you know, some, some validation, right? Probably goes back to even some of your music. This is your, yeah, this is your message. Yeah, yeah, this is my work that I want out. (laughs) Exactly. Yep. That's there, man. That's in the stew of all the things that are driving me. But I do think, to what your question was getting at, that like, if you look at all the people that have been able to move other folks and help organize other folks that are suffering, that are going through tough stuff, and um, and I'm talking about working people here uh, in capitalism, particularly, uh, the people that were able to help like sort of organize those folks into a force that those folks were able to then take the reins and achieve win things, right? Win changes at their workplaces or win public schools as a public good, uh, win social security, all these kind of big public goods that help working class folks. The people that motivated and helped organize them were folks that were bringing in their personal story as well. They weren't just from the outside saying, oh, I'm going to help you. Like, here's why you should be mad at your boss or mad at the rich people or whatever, they're actually part of those movements themselves and they had to step in and, and kind of 
bring in a personal aspect of their lives to see those connections and why we're all sort of fighting the same thing at the end of the day. And it isn't just on the left either. The right uses that and the Mm -hmm. ones that are probably the, the best at getting, you know, that, that base in there riled up, right? That, that frenzy is those more personal stories, whether or not they're made up is another Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Right. But you, Oh man, what was it? Joe Plummer or something like yeah, that? Yeah, Joe right? the Plummer. Yeah, yeah, he was he was a big part of it a few years back, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So having that that one person in there that represents, mm-hmm. you know, that that working class blue collar that this is this is what I attach myself to. Mm-hmm. This is what I identify as. You know, it can be used in both both ways, and the ones that are are doing it the best to get that personal story out there is probably what everybody will latch on to. You're right on, man. I think that one of the biggest victories for the right wing, and when I say the right wing, I really just mean folks that own a lot of property and have a lot of money. So we're talking about the 0.1% or so right in the economy. Um, Those in power, more or less. Um, One of their biggest victories in the last, since since we've been alive, Mm -hmm. 30, 40 years, late 70s probably, is making taxes individual personal issue so instead of saying well no like these corporations need to pay more tax walmart needs to pay more in taxes right because they're the richest family in the united states or jeff bezos who is the richest person in the world needs to pay more taxes not the amazon delivery worker making eight dollars an hour right or the the walmart associate that's making you know minimum wage the right wing was able to shift the narrative around taxes to say any any time we talk about raising taxes that means more taxes for that you're going to be paying more in taxes you individual whoever you are right um so the you know the walmart or someone working at walmart or working at wawa or working whatever working class job is like i don't want to pay more in taxes i got to pay my rent my my yeah. wages have not gone up in whatever time i'm getting no benefits i'm getting bad I benefits i get paid commission i don't want more cat yeah, who wants to pay more taxes, right? right? But Jeff Bezos has plenty of money to pay more taxes, and he should be because Amazon is using roads every day to deliver their packages, right? They're using them. Way, he's using roads in our infrastructure way more than any of us individually yeah. are driving our car, right? So he should be paying a lot more in taxes because he's simply because he's using up the infrastructure that all of us are paying for. So what I'm getting at is that. There's a way to look at taxes where you have progressive taxation or you have regressive taxation, right? So there's either it's um, taking money, more money from folks that have more to give, right, to pay into schools and pay into all these other public goods that we have, or you're taking more money out of working class people's pockets to pay for this stuff. And the right wing has been able to shift it to be, oh, Jeff Bezos is just like the the Amazon worker that's delivering the packages for Amazon. And then anytime we raise taxes, you know, it's bad to raise taxes on Jeff Bezos because that means you're going to have to pay more taxes too. No, let's raise the taxes on, on Jeff Bezos. You don't need to raise your taxes, right? Or at least tax the corporations, right? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, or exactly. At least, at least find at least another. just tax them. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Do- Letting them dodge. Yeah, taxes, I, that, right? I think, uh, and this is my own personal um, view on it. Like Libertarians have a good, solid message, I think. Mm. Freedom is a very important thing. You know, you should yeah, be able to be against that. right, free to do whatever you want <laughs> right. to. Taxation isn't theft. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's one of my my own personal pet peeves of 
any other political parties mm. is taxation is theft, that phrase, because mm-hmm. it's not. It's it's part of what you do. And I understand some of the ones that are talking about, oh, just crowdsource everything. Okay, that's yeah. socialism. Yeah, that's, exactly. right. that's what you want. Like that's <laughs> your, I understand that it's your own money, that you think that it's just your own money that's going to it. And I, I get that. That's cool. But overall, taxation is the way that we keep everything kind of together right. and how we're able to – if we don't have those programs, then your grandpa, your grandma, your great grandma, mm-hmm. your cousin that's mentally ill, mm-hmm. your your sister that's depressed, your brother that that just committed suicide, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. All that stuff could be helped through Medicare, Social Security, the stuff that you pay into, right? Right. All of that can go back into the school system, can help the, the guidance counselors actually talk to these kids. Yeah. And there's there's so much that can be done. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that gets put into perspective for some people is, is another thing. And whether or not that money gets spent on the right thing is a completely different thing. Exactly. I think that that's why I always like to just land on democracy and and that's a huge word and it's broad we hear it all the time it's a broad term like what does that really mean right does that mean voting does that mean more than voting right so you have to define it but i think that without ever increasing democracy in our government right so more ways that more people can get not only to vote their elected representatives but actually be involved in the way their school is run their public school yeah or actually decide what you know where roads get built whatever not everyone needs to think about it and strategize around it but to be able to have a say in that process that's what i mean by democracy and as as long as we have more of that happening and we're headed in that direction to me taxes are are fine and they're and they're necessary for mm-hmm. all the things you just laid out so i understand if we don't have the democracy and it's like someone's just taking something out of my paycheck that i work for and then they're just going to go do whatever they want with it like go get us in more wars for example yeah. right or all these other things and not actually use it in ways that I have a say in, I get why, to use what you were saying, I get why people on the face of it don't really see that connection. But to your point, I mean, if you take away, say we don't pay taxes at all and then there's no government and we just crowdsource everything that we want to want, right? I mean, that would be, that'd be the Wild West and that's literally sort of what it was back in the day. But it's in, in, in some way, one other way to look at this is that taxes actually allow capitalism to function. This is where I disagree completely with libertarians. I think they're they're you know they're in the land of like unicorns and rainbows and stuff, <laughs> utopia. Because if you take away taxes and you ta- which fund social programs like welfare programs, yeah. if you liter- if you take away away those welfare and those programs, that safety net right that that keeps people from literally dying because of capitalism. Uh, you know, doesn't provide all the health care that we need, mm-hmm. for example, people are going to grab pitchforks and come after rich people at some point, cause, and they always have. That's where guillotines, right, and pitchforks, and now it would be guns. in France right like, now, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So it would – capitalism can't function without a government that is taxing for yeah. some so, uh, social safety net because it just gets so brutal. The market can't provide all the needs that people have. Eventually, people get fed up because so many of their – their people in their community are dying. They're like, I'm going to grab this torch and go after that rich guy. Yeah. And that's happened so many, that's revolution. It's happened yeah, so many times. Yeah, and I also times. think that's part of it where when you talk about capitalism and you talk about a true free market, you can't have a true free market. 
you want you want to have it. Everybody wants to be free. Right. That's the whole thing. Everybody wants to have it, but you there has to be some kind of safety net. There has to be some kind of mm-hmm. machines that keep everything going and a force to keep everything going. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where you if we had a free market, everything would be privatized and our roads would be going to wherever the the factory is. Exactly. And we have other things to do. Right, exactly. Yeah. So we have, that's we have shows to get to. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, we have podcasts to listen to. We have podcasts to, like, to record and like, listen yeah, to. Yeah. That's it's, We're it's do stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Stuff. And yeah. and that's I think that's the the other part is when when you privatize so much, and I'm gonna sound like a super leftist, and I, I have like a pretty good central idea of everything, um, but my one of my things was is if you let everything privatize and you let um the money go to where the corporations want it then the arts don't come through mm-hmm. then the the ability to feel like a human doesn't happen mm-hmm. and your mindfulness and your meditation mm. that we're talking about doesn't get a chance to flourish doesn't mm-hmm. get a chance to have that personal connection and then you just see everybody as a number and then mm-hmm. the connection is gone and then yep. hopefully eventually that that revolution comes through right yeah maybe maybe that's a thing but you get so beleaguered and, and so run down that you you're not able to do it and that's that's something where i think for us and our generation especially where we have shit pay we have terrible housing options we're nine times out of ten still living with parents Mm-hmm. because we can't get out of student debt all all this other nonsense right yeah. all of this other stuff if you don't have any kind of outlet to release whether whether it is facebook mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. what whatever it is then you're not going to be able to to be a part of the the greater good or a part of the, uh, an economy that keeps going too right because at this point our economy might fall off because we just can't get our shit together right yeah capitalism is like already a bad bargain like it, it's so volatile that it could just fall and it does there's periodic crises right yeah. 2008 great depression uh oil crisis in the 70s i mean every decade there's another big crisis that just wipes out all that hard work that people have saved up and you know, put in and saved up <coughs> so it's not even like i think that's another part of the millennial story that you were getting at there is that like our trust in capitalism being something that is going to pay us back if we put in the work right that it's a fair bargain is is just diminishing that trust Mm -hmm. in that because we watched 2008 where people's houses were wiped out right and foreclosed on um so if you can buy a house if houses aren't even if mortgages aren't even a trustworthy investment which have always been talked about as the most trustworthy then something you know something's wrong here and why should i go to work slave every day and not go get into not be able to express myself in the ways that you're talking about because I'm working my ass off all the time. And this actually gets back to, I think, as I think thought about it in recent years, what has really drives my politics at the end of the day is that I watched my dad work FedEx deliver packages for over 30 years, you know, my lifetime, um, day in and day out, just working his ass off every day. And at first, you know, he says that I was young. I don't know. But, you know, there was a pension. There were decent benefits. His pay would go up every, you know, every so often. And they didn't, it wasn't that hard of a job. Then he could just go and knock it out and come home and do all the other stuff he wanted to do. And um, 
but eventually I just watched how that company just started to, you know, go harder and harder and harder on their employees and control them more and more and more and track where they go mm-hmm. and, you know, limit the amount of time they have for lunch. Mm-hmm. And just, it was like a factory machine where he was just a cog in that machine. And they took away the pension and turned it into a 401k and, you know, pay started, the, the pay raises started slowing down. And it, meanwhile, his body's getting worn out because he's delivering packages every day. So he's giving everything to this company and they're just progressively getting worse in terms of what they're giving back to him. Yeah, and I also think that if you're not able to be a person that can move up and you are you are just at entry level, yep. they're going to do one of two things. One, they're going to work you to the bone, yep. right, and take away pretty much everything that you have invested. Or two, they're going to find a way to get rid of you and exactly. replace you with someone that – can can work and yep. can work at a, a lower rate and yeah, of course we even see this in music where mm. you have a lot of cover bands that are 30 to 35 to 40 right mm-hmm. and they have families mm-hmm. and they may or may not be doing this as a full-time job but if they are doing it as a full-time job they need to be able to make more money right right they need to have a standard of living that they're used to and can help with you know the the overall family arc, right? Yeah. So now you also have kids that are 20, 21, 22 mm-hmm. that are fine with playing for $200, $300, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's their way of just going out and playing music. Yep. They don't care about anything else. Yeah. And I think we, we talked about this earlier. I don't know if it was on mic or off mic, but if you don't treat yourself like a business at all, mm-hmm. And just keep running and keep going and keep going, then you're not able to, you know, sustain yourself. Yeah. And that's that's where the conversations that I'm having through this podcast, hmm. I'm seeing that that autonomy in there hmm. where it needs to be more present in a lot of other people. And I think hmm. that you have it to where you see everything that's around you and hmm. the story of your dad kind of hits home for you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you if you're able to maybe touch space with everybody and and have that conversation and be like, we're better than what we're getting right. first. And let's take this a little bit more serious. I know that you're hungry, but you don't have to work for $5 an hour. Right. We can get you to a place that, and that's probably like a, a union kind yeah. of promise, right? Yeah. Which is, isn't in itself kind of a dual edged sword. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think, um, and unions have their own special part where it is this labor, right? Yep. And the people that get taken advantage of and, and the ones that that need the help that aren't getting it. Yeah. And unions in other aspects, like sales, for example, you don't need a sales union. Mm. I just there's no there's no real reason for right. it. Right, 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 right. But when when they're needed, there that conversation needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean the the yeah. To me, the problem, I don't, and I don't have the answer to this, and so I'm maybe even going to out out left radical you when you were right. saying earlier. Yeah, the problem is capitalism. You know, I don't know what the answer is, um, but to me, that's the problem. Unions are a tool for working class people that were born into a situation where they weren't born into any sort of wealth or property. It's a tool for them to have some power to fight back, to get some, to, to eke out a little bit of an existence that is, um, you know more humane uh, and safe and um, fulfilling. 
And so, you know, unions are just a tool. It's a way for workers to come together. Um, there are other forms. There are worker-owned businesses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, co-ops, mm-hmm. right, is another form where the workers really own the business themselves and they're not just representing themselves as a union. Um, but again, the larger problem. So to me, I, what I'm getting at is that there are criticisms that can be wagered at unions, mm-hmm. um, like any institution or any group of people. But I think in my head, unions are the best tool for working people uh, to use um, in most cases, not all cases, as you yeah. said. And through organizing in unions and fighting back against the Jeff Bezoses of the world uh, and the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, that is how you start to start to see what a different sort of society could be that isn't based on capitalism. Capitalism has only been around 300 or 400 years. It started in Europe, in England. It's not a natural thing. Um, it was essentially invented by certain people. Um, I think it does have some good aspects to it. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's been a lot of innovation that is driven by capitalism. If you think about it in the medical world, um, you know, there's been some amazing things that have happened because of the profit motive. But then if there's always the other side of the coin there, and now we've got the most expensive health care in the world and people are dying because they don't have access to it. So, yeah. it, you know, it's good and bad. And even if you look at the technology companies now, there's – I think there is this – fairy tale image of that some of the the older generations have of millennials to where they go into work and they're able to take naps <laughs> or the millennials just don't want to work or mm-hmm. that you know they get pampered so much mm-hmm. but there's there's two ways to look at it one is it a business that has discovered that people are their greatest asset Mm. And to give back to some of those, because I'm in the same boat that you you were in. My mom lost her pension and was forced into a 401k. Mm-hmm. And now she's down in North Carolina doing whatever she wants to because she was like, screw it. I'll just go do whatever I want to now. Mm. You know, I'm we're in the same boat as, yeah. as far as that, that experience goes. Yeah. And I, I see that and I see older generations look down on millennials as far as the ones that just don't want to work, where mm-hmm. I work with all the way from 20, 21-year-olds all the mm. way up to 40, 50-year-olds. And mm-hmm. I, I see the different drive that, that everybody has. They want they want to be there. Mm-hmm. They want to work. They, No one wants to not have a, a family. No yeah. one wants not, not wants to have a safe place yeah. to, to sleep, right? right? Whether it's a warehouse or whether it's a house. <laughs> right. You know, they, they need something. Yeah. So I think... Like you talk about Google and talk about Facebook and some of their like nap pods and yeah, some yeah, of the yeah. stuff in Japan. And yeah, yeah. The, yeah. And I think it's more of companies somewhat realizing that it is an actual like people are their biggest assets now. Right. Rather than just the technology. Right. Double side of that is, yeah, come work for us because this is our image now. Mm-hmm. Where we're so innovated, like everybody should be coming to us now, mm-hmm, and that's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's all a sham, I think. But the 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 like the sleep pods and all yeah, that stuff, yeah, that just the idea of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, another aspect of this, I thought you were you were going, you're kind of getting there at the end. Was like, it also, you know, I've heard of folks working, and I used to work in the tech industry before I got into politics. 
you know, if you're coding and stuff, you want to, you know, you end up working like 12 hour, 14 hour days. You're just like in the trenches, knocking yeah. stuff out. So that takes a little bit of that, the edge off of your anger, you know, and your dissatisfaction with this job where you got to work 12 hours a day. You don't even get to see your family at the Google headquarters or whatever, even though you're getting paid a lot of money because there's a sleep pod and you can go take a nap and then come back to work. You know what I mean? So it's a way also for the company to incentivize folks to just sit around at the office all day and drink. They have beers at the office and, you know, they've got food and all that. Just stay there and keep working. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's and in I their think, interest too, you know? Yeah. I think that is, it's, I think it's a, a little, little, whenever anything sounds too good. Yeah. Right. It exactly. always is, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's there's always some kind of sinister yep. and scenario idea of it. Yeah. That's that's going behind it. So they're not they're not just thinking, yeah, this this is great for the people. Like we mm-hmm. should we really treat our people well. Well right. they're saying that to get more people to work fourteen, fifteen, sixteen hours. Right, exactly. Yeah. 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 So I yeah. I get that. that yeah. Ugh. Anyway. <laughs> um so we'll wrap it up with this. Uh you touched on it earlier for your politics. The yeah. biggest driving factor is you seeing that firsthand. Mm-hmm. With your writing, I guess two questions. One, what do you think is going to keep you going the most? Hmm. And two, what do you think your overall goal is? We touched on it kind of briefly. What What do you think your overall goal is to get that mindfulness that the meditation mm-hmm. that personal connection and the the pol- political writing yeah i'll answer the second one first i think it's easier um <coughs> i right now i teach meditation at one public sector unions office mm-hmm. in dc once a week I lead a little guided meditation and then we have a short discussion around about mindfulness and and how it's working out for people and, and if they're trying meditation in their own lives outside of the office and that's so cool because it's taking, for me, it's taking meditation out of, as we talked about before, these meditation circles, which are dominated mostly by the more white-collar workers. This is an office of, you know, white-collar workers because they're working in an office, but they're also working for a union. They're unionized. And a lot of them actually don't live in D.C. They commute to D.C. Um, and a lot of them are a little older, you know, 40, 50, 60, uh, 60 years old. And they're not the sort of folks you would expect to see in a meditation, you know, space. So I want to continue down that path and continue to teach more to unions, use union offices uh, as a way in to teach meditation to working class people. And I think the more I can do that, I'm getting that one-on-one impact because I'm teaching. I'm having discussions with people about what is stressing them out in their lives and I'm hopefully providing a tool that is going to help them take some of that edge off. I'm not going to, I'm not a therapist. I can't solve all their problems, but then it's in a political space where people are already organized as workers and fighting their bosses for higher pay and better benefits and working conditions. So I'm checking that box too. And there's meditation. So it's sort of, sort of if if the more working class people that I can take this practice too Mm -hmm. that maybe at first blush would be like oh that's for hippies or you know hipsters up in dc and if i can know actually no like it can help you know help with the stress that you're experiencing at your job or with your with your wife or whatever you know you're looking at facebook all day and you know you're just you're all over the place in your head and you're stressed out and, and restless feeling this practice can actually help you a little bit and take that edge off rather than 
going having another drink or smoking another cigarette or whatever it is. I'm not saying that I'm anti that stuff. Like I definitely drink, but like, I feel like that is for a lot of people I know and definitely for, for, for me for a long time, um, you know, drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, uh, sex were like the only ways that I knew how to like release and kind yeah. of take that edge off or play video games or whatever it is. And there are other tools is all I'm trying to say. And there's this meditation that has been really useful for me. I'm obviously, like I said, I still definitely drink and, and do other stuff too, but a little bit of that meditation, just, I don't have to, I don't have to have that drink, you know, to like, yeah. to feel okay. So that, that, that's where I want to take it goal wise. Um, and the more I push in that direction and once I figure out how to actually make a little bit more money doing that, I think that's where I'm going to be headed towards professionally. Um, and then the first question about what's going to drive me or what drives me and all that, um, that's, that's a good one. I think I spent a lot of time thinking about that and sort of have a phrase and then I, you know, this is what drives me. This is my mission and I'll come up with my phrase and then I, the next year that changes or, you know, a month later it changes. The latest one, though, I think is something like helping helping people open to things when they uh, when they're closed off to them. Uh, and this might even go to our, the thing we talked about with teaching, you know, teaching people to open, simply just open. Sometimes, you know, there are a lot of bad things out there in the world that you should be afraid of and stay away from. But there are also a lot of really awesome things and, and amazing people. And not everybody's out to get you and and kind of like you know, steal your money or break into your house mm. or whatever. And I just feel like so many people walk around just closed off and afraid of other people. And something about that rubs me, you know, rubs the wrong, like it just, something's wrong there. And I want to help them open up and actually just be accepting of other people. And it kind of veers into the politics there. But that's what drives me is watching someone that is closed off, even tense in their body and just stressed out. And, and teaching them this practice of meditation and having a discussion with them, asking them questions and opening up and listening and being curious. And then they open up and suddenly they're just, they're in a space of just being less tense, less stressed and less judgmental of other people. Now, maybe it just, they snap back into that, that tight place as soon mm -hmm. as they walk out the door, but just being able to open them and allow them to experience simple, just being open and free in the moment that drives me that that's that seeing that light bulb goes off is what does what it you know why i do it cool yeah i think that's it